0: Lord, we thank you for this incredible day, for this incredible passage that is before us today. And we ask, Spirit of God, you who have been outpoured onto the church, refresh us today. Help us to understand the things that are here written, the things that are in fact authored by you and given to us through Luke. We pray that you would be with us and enable us today. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the middle of the night, hospital machinery surrounded the mother who had been in that hospital for three months continuous, and the baby was born, but it was still too early, and he was still too small, and he was still too blue. That baby got a zero on his APGAR scores And the nurse and the doctors immediately after the delivery were frantically working on the baby and they said words that would haunt the mother and never be forgotten. Breathe, baby, breathe. And the mother and the father waited for what seemed like an eternity in a few seconds until the baby... That one over there, right next to the woman that I was sitting next to, took his first breath. The breath of life was caught. We take breathing for granted until we don't, or until we can't, or until for some reason we've gotten the wind knocked out of us. I know I've shared this before, but in olden days, a sailing ship could travel across the ocean and could come to a place in the ocean where the winds ceased, and that was the doldrums, the place where there was no wind and there was no escape for a sailing ship. And so they would sit sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, waiting. Looking, scanning the horizon, waiting to see a few ripples in the water, a few ruffles of the waves that would indicate, get the sails ready, wetted, that would bring both sail and ship then to life. In the beginning of the book which you hold in your hand, in the beginning of the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, over the darkness, over the void. The ruach of God, the numa, the wind, the breath of God hovered ready to breathe life into the nostrils of creation, waiting to fill the darkness and the void with light and life. At the end of Exodus, we just read it together. The climax of that great book is when the Spirit of God, cloudy, windy, glorious, fills the tabernacle. If we traced through Scripture, the Spirit departs in the book of Ezekiel. But then one comes who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, the one upon whom the Spirit of God comes to rest at his baptism, the one who is led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit of God, and has now instructed his disciples, his followers, to say, wait, wait till he comes, and you are filled, which brings us to this day, Pentecost. It is, uh, the meaning of the the word Pentecost is 50, 50 days after Passover, the feast of the harvest or the feast of weeks, as you trace that through the book of Exodus, the, the first fruits of the harvest, when many Jews would have been gathered into Jerusalem, still celebrating the feast, not all of them, but some would have been there, and we've got a representation of them listed for us in the passage today. This dawning of this day, this coming of the Spirit was longed for, awaited, foretold, both in act and in prophecy in the Word of God. This is the dawning of the new covenant and the last days. It is this day, the beginning of the end. The inauguration of the final countdown, the Normandy of World War II. It is, it is the rock that is dropped into the pond of the world, the ripples of which will extend to every corner of the globe and continue until the one who ascended returns. And so we have before us then one of the most important days in redemptive history, and yet it is a day that is often confused and abused. And if there's any consolation in company, it was confused and abused then as well. So we're not alone who live in a day when this day of Pentecost, people scratch their heads and try and figure out what in the world is taking place here. Now, today's sermon is deliberately not going to be a, an overview or a summary of the work of the Spirit of God. We could do that. That's comprehensive. But I've decided instead to allow us to enter into this story as it unfolds. Now, mind you, this is early on, and I've, I've, I've said this to us already now in a couple of sermons and acts. This is early on. We're going to have to walk with them as they understand more and more about this work that God begins. And so we're not going to come to complete conclusions about everything at this point. We'll walk with them through the story, but I think the story works out well for us in terms of describing the event, the reaction to the event, and then the explanation that comes after, and that's the way I'll approach it today with just a few conclusions then at the end. So the event itself, the event of Pentecost, it is not subtle, it is not gradual, It's not quiet. It's not invisible. This took place, verse 2, suddenly. There's a temporal marker for us in terms of how it took place. Suddenly. It was audible. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now, whether or not there was a rushing wind, we actually don't read, probably. But nevertheless, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Was audible, was visual. There were tongues of fire that came and rested on the heads. And it's hard for us to know exactly what this looked like. All of us have seen fires before and have a sense that tires, fires licking up the flames can look like tongues. Was it one tongue that came and then divided and settled amongst the, those who were gathered there? Hard to say exactly. But nevertheless, it was clearly visible was clearly fire. It did not consume them. As a bush in Exodus was not consumed, when the fire of God was there, neither were these disciples consumed. And you remember that one who was at that bush said, I can't speak. Who am I to do this? And the Lord said to him, Who made your tongue? Who made that? We just finished Exodus. And so, loud sounds and wind and fire, they're familiar to us, right? They've got a familiar ring to us. We just finished the book where it's the champion book of loud sounds, of wind and fire. They're familiar to us in expressing for us, in articulating the presence of God and the various attributes his power, his holiness, his comfort or his judgment, knowing that that fire can be one or the other. We don't know how long this initial sound lasted, and we don't know how long the appearance of these tongues of fire lasted either. One gets the impression, I think, as I look at this, that it wasn't very long that that particular part of the phenomenon was not ongoing. But nevertheless, it's there. And so we've got temporal, audible, visual, and then, of course, we've got experiential. Verse 4. They were filled with the Spirit. This is a term Luke is very comfortable using. He applies it to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, to John the Baptist... To Jesus. It is the term, of course, that relates to the filling of the tabernacle with the glory of God, and it is a term that is used in conjunction with, in parallel to, any other number of terms, and I know we come to this at the beginning of the sermon, but this is a, a key point to understand, but to be filled with the Spirit is to be baptized with the Spirit. It is to receive the Spirit it is to have the Spirit poured out, to be in the Spirit. These terms are all interchangeable. You can't take one and say, well, this is what this means and this is what the other one is. These terms are all referencing the same thing, the same idea. And, of course, the thing that strikes us as it struck the people who were there that day is that they are enabled through the Spirit to speak in other tongues. So here we are in our day and age, and we ask the question, then, what are these other tongues? What does this mean? And I, I have to just say this as plainly as it can possibly be said, the other tongues that are mentioned here are foreign languages. That is what they are, and that is all they are. They are foreign languages. The gift that is being described here is the ability to speak in a foreign language without having either grown up there or done the necessary study required to speak in a foreign language. Now, some would say then, when we come to Corinthians, the only other book in the New Testament which discusses tongues, that we're now speaking about a different phenomenon. Perk, Sorry personally, I don't agree with that. I think they're foreign languages in Corinthians as well. But if you have questions about that and want to talk about it, we're having a Sabbath symposium this evening. Parentheses. You can come and ask questions about exactly that or anything else. These are foreign languages. And let's be clear here as well. The miracle was a miracle of speech, and this is often written this way. It's a miracle of speech and not of hearing. So, it's not that they, the miracle was that they heard them in their own languages. The miracle is that these folks were speaking in the language of all of these others who were there, and they heard them as such. So, that's what took place. Now, let's see the reaction to what took place. Luke highlights for us, as he, as he describes this scene, all of the Jewish people who are in Jerusalem at that time. Now, some of them were residents in Jerusalem. Some of them were immigrants to Jerusalem, perhaps towards the end of their lives, who moved back to Jerusalem to be closer to the faith. He describes them as devout people. Now, we know from the story, right? We just finished Luke. We know that everybody, not every Jew who was living in Jerusalem was devout or could be characterized that way. But nevertheless, there were those who were devout, those who sought with integrity to walk after the Lord. Some would have been visiting for the festivals And, and this is no small addition by Luke, in verse 11, what Luke says to us is that some of them were there who were proselytes. They were non-Jewish, God-fearers, those who were seeking to understand, to follow Yahweh as best they could, followers of the faith. And they hear, and they gather together. And to put this into context, what's going on here, men from every... I think it says languages from every corner of the earth. I ah, can't find it right at the moment. The stone has been dropped, and it's been dropped in Jerusalem. And just like Acts 1.8 says, as you would expect, it begins in Jerusalem, and the ripple effect immediately begins to be felt. It is localized within Jerusalem, but you've got people and languages from all of these places. And even the first, these proselytes who are there, Gentiles who are starting to hear things as well, even though we're primarily focused on the Jews who are in Jerusalem, and the ripples start to go out immediately as Pentecost takes place. They hear the wind, they hear the sound, and then they come and are gathered to this place, and not only do they hear or have heard that wind that gathers them perhaps, but they also hear this multilingual, multilingual babble or chatter that is going on all around them, and it's confusing, and they're asking themselves just as you and I would be asking ourselves, what is happening? How can this be taking place? We know these guys. We know they're Galileans. We know that they don't speak our language, but there it is, and we then receive from Luke a list of nations which are represented of the people who are there and gather from all over the place. And you can't help but read that and see the parallel to the way that Genesis is structured. Genesis 10 and 11 and the story of Babel and the nations that are represented in chapter 10 and the story of the dispersion of the languages then in the Tower of Babel. But here, the questions abound. What does this mean? Are these guys drunk? Well, two things that help us to understand this. One, if you've ever been in a setting, maybe an airport, maybe a, a London, a, a conflation of languages going on in that city in any subway station that you may go into. Maybe you've been in a setting where there are, it's multilingual, and you realize that, that even if you understand one of those languages, hearing all of them at one time just sounds like muttering, murmuring, babbling going on. It doesn't sound like it makes any sense at all, and so we get this idea. Maybe they're drunk. Likewise, it is often said that if you have a little bit to drink when you're studying a language, that your tongue actually flows a little bit better. Part of your brain shuts off, that part that's analyzing, and you just speak in that language a little bit better. That's at least what they say about Russian, anyway. In any case, in any case, Peter stands up. After some time, and he begins the explanation of what is taking place. And oddly enough, surprisingly enough, the, the the opening sermon at Pentecost has a bit of humor. Right in the first line of it. We're not drunk. Now that's not humorous, that's just the fact. Facts can be funny, but in this case, we're not drunk. But when you add after all, it's nine o'clock in the morning. That's funny. But Peter instead rejects any kind of natural explanation to what is going on here, and he says, if you want to understand what is taking place in front of you, we're going to have to go to Scripture, and I'm going to have to explain it to you, because we, we Jews, we God-fearers, we proselytes who are here, we've got a common source that we can go to, a place of authority. Let's understand what is taking place in light of what God has authoritatively said in His Word. And so, He begins. And verse 16 says it this way, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The uh, King James version, version says, but this is that which was. This is that. F.F. F. Bruce is a commentator uh, on, on Acts and many other things. And He took this as a section in his commentary on Acts and then made a book of it as well. This is that. That's a nice little summary about how you work your way through the preaching, especially the preaching to the Jews in the book of Acts. What I want to explain to you is this is that. Joel talked about the coming of the last days and he described how the last days would be characterized. And Peter's point in quoting Joel is This is that. Here we are. We are now at the beginning of the last days, which Joel foresaw. Men of Judea, you are hearing and witnessing the torrential downpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it is not going to be localized. It may start here, But it will grow into a storm that will encompass the earth. It will not be localized to one man, to one tent, to one building, to one hill, to one city, to one geographic land, to one nation, to one language. Rather, instead, it'll be a colossal storm, a universal downpour that cuts through, and here I'm just summarizing what is written for us in Joel, that cuts through gender and age, social status, race, national and linguistic boundaries and borders, you are witnessing, men of Judea, the effects of the downpour of the Spirit of God, which unsurprisingly, we should also call the baptism of the Spirit. And when the Spirit reigns, the Spirit pours. So what does Joel slash Peter, what do they teach us about this outpouring, this downpour, this baptism of the Spirit of God? Several things. One, that it is revelational. So you heard us read the passage this morning, you've got it sitting before you. You see in this passage from Joel descriptions of prophecy, of visions, of dreams, of signs, and of wonders. Things that have characterized the ministry of Jesus. As Peter makes very, very clear, you've seen these things. This is exactly what you saw in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they'll say it in the ministry of the apostles as well. God is revealing Himself. And in addition to seeing these things, what you heard from Jesus is what you are now hearing from me, namely the explanation. I'm telling you what they are. These aren't bare signs. These are signs that I can explain to you from the Word of God and tell you what they mean. That's what Peter's doing. This is that. Interestingly, there's absolutely no mention of tongues in Joel. That's what we're trying to explain, right? That's the point of, let me dig up Joel And yet there's absolutely no mention of tongues. What are we to make of that? Clearly there's a mention of prophecy, but there's no mention of tongues. Well, the only solution to that is to understand that tongues, when they are interpreted, when they are interpreted, are the equivalent of prophecy. The Word of God coming forth. And so Peter says, that's what this is. This is prophecy. This is the Word of God. Tongues that you are hearing. And here's a point I can only make in parentheses right now. The fact that they are speaking in many languages and being heard and understood is blessing. It is good to hear something in your language. If you have been in a foreign country, been lost and been confused, you know that it is good to hear somebody speak in your language and tell you where to go and what to do. It's a good thing. It's indicative of the, the gospel going out to all of these places. And in addition to being a blessing, it is a portent. It is a warning. There are warnings in the Old Testament that people of a strange tongue are going to come, and I'll talk to them, and they'll talk to you, but you won't understand. There is a hardening that even now, even in this gathering, is beginning to take place with Israel, a hardening that we saw in the life of Jesus Christ and a hardening that will continue throughout the book of Acts. Other tongues, while it shows inclusion, also shows God turning To the Gentiles, even though mainly we've got Jews that are before us today. It's revelational. When the Spirit is poured out, it is revealing who God is and what His Word is. Secondly, it is transformative. When the Spirit of God is poured out, things do not remain the same. Fire changes things. Fearful disciples become bold, Confused disciples speak clearly. New languages are used. People understand the Word of God and understand these things connected to Jesus Christ. I don't know that we saw this kind of response to any of Jesus preaching in exactly this way, but we see it now because the Spirit of God is enabling them to understand the Word of God. Not only are minds impacted, but hearts are impacted as well, and that is unsurprising to us because it's exactly what Ezekiel said would happen with the coming of the Spirit. I'll put a new heart in you. I'll take out that stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. And so when we read the response of the Jews who were gathered and it says that they were cut to the heart, we go, wait, wait, that's exactly what Ezekiel said. This is that. It's a change of heart because of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Cleansing occurs when it rains, when it pours, when you're baptized. Cleansing occurs. I'll cleanse you, Ezekiel. And so the new heart is put in, the new heart. That enables people to believe, to love the Lord, to love the law of the Lord. It's transformative. When the Spirit comes as well, it is salvific. When the Spirit of God gets poured out on people, those, any of those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the climax of what Joel is saying. Let's let the main thing be the main thing. And the main thing is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This spirit vivifies. It brings new life to creation. This spirit brings new life to dried up bones. It saves. It's the last word in Joel... It's the summary of what Peter preaches. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And it is the last thing that is listed in this chapter. Day by day, those who were being saved. The outpouring of the Spirit of God results in salvation coming to those who are lost. It is the greatest work of the Spirit of God to allow the mind to believe, the heart to embrace in the mouth to confess the very earliest Christian creed that is tucked right into the middle of this passage. Jesus is Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord. When the Spirit of God comes he enables people to say that from the heart and that is better than anything else and finally then this spirit characterized here is evidential the outpouring of the spirit of god is evidence of or indicative of what is written for us in verses 32 and 33 the outpouring of the spirit means this is true Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You want an explanation for what you're seeing and hearing right now? The explanation is this, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. All that you are seeing now, don't think it's in and of itself. It's a sign to you that the king is up on his throne and that Jesus has received vindication from God, been given the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has done what he said he would do to his disciples before he left them. I'll send you one. I'll send you a comforter. Wait. Jesus is doing... What John said he would do, I baptize you with water, but one will come who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's what you're seeing and hearing. Pentecost is the demonstration, the historic affirmation of the reign and the enthronement of King Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Pentecost was inaugural. It was historic, and it was unique in redemptive history. As such, it is to be celebrated, it is to be remembered, it is to be appreciated, and it is not to be repeated. It is a glorious dawn. With the accompanying signs and wonders that you see on a great morning When the dawn is fresh and new and the clouds are there and the rays strike up into the clouds. Those are not repeated while you're in the day. We are in the day. Don't look. Don't spend any time. Don't waste any effort looking for tongues, for signs, for dreams, for vision, for prophecy. They have been fulfilled. They have come to an end. Why? Because they have been superseded. Something better has come. Namely, the Word of God that you have in your hand. The thing to which those things pointed has now taken place. You have the living and active Word of God inspired, written by the Spirit of God that works within us now. Don't look for the signs when you've arrived at your destination. You have arrived by the grace of God. But Pentecost, while it is unique and while it in and of itself is not to be repeated, Pentecost is also essential, and it is personal. For we, we're all baptized into the same Spirit. We're all united in one Spirit, partakers of one Spirit. And therefore, I say this to you. If you don't understand who Jesus Christ is and what He's done, if it doesn't make sense to you, if you don't believe it with your heart, if you can't say with integrity that Jesus is Lord, then be warned. Because a day is coming and the fire will consume. It is a great and magnificent day or a terrible day. And so the call from Peter becomes the call to you, and I will put it in language that is slightly different. The call to you then, if you were in that state, I would say to you this. Breathe, baby. Breathe. Take the breath of life. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To those of you who are in Jesus Christ, if you have become casual, complacent towards the things of God, comfortable with your sin, timid instead of bold, cold in your heart, apathetic to the church, to the fellowship of the saints, to the preaching, to prayer, careless in the way that you live your life, lukewarm toward the faith. Breathe, baby, breathe. Kindle the fire, the vivifying Spirit of Jesus Christ stands ready, is available to empower, to help, to comfort, to renew.